Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Out of Patience. My guest today is Erica Hawthorne, who I saw, I don't know, rip the fabric of time apart at a recent healthcare conference. She just, she just, like, no holds barred, ripped apart the entire system, tore a hole in space-time, and I just knew I had to know this human being. So I accosted her in the best sense of the term professionally, and we got to be friends very, very quickly. She lives in New York City, so karma prevailed. And she joins me live here in studio to talk about her passionate work in marketing. And that may sound wonky, but pharma marketing is classic fuckery, and it's worth deconstructing because who the hell needs to see crappy pharma ads on your TV, hearing it on your radio? Did you know there's $22.6 billion a year in healthcare spend and year over year consumer trust in all those ads is 16%. Why the hell is this a thing? Also, she's a classic Gen Xer, so we throw down the gauntlet on nostalgia, the 90s, which sucked, the 80s, which are awesome, and all the shenanigans you would expect right here on the show. Enjoy the episode. You're in for a treat. Erica. Hi, Matthew. Are you out of patience? Oh, my God. So out of patience. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't born with any. (laughs) It's congenital out of patience. I like that. It's a nice disease to have. Yes. Just... I wrote an article today about um, something, and I said it's the right amount of what I say anger and disappointment <laughs> that we have to live with in healthcare. Yeah, I think so, right? Because you're in this perpetual state of why is it like this? Right. Like I saw a meme the other day that said, "Who made the decision to separate eyes and teeth from healthcare?" Eyes and teeth, right? Dental and optics are never part of a healthcare plan; they're always separate. And it's so weird because you literally can die from a bad toothache. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the canary in the, the coal the, mine. Yeah. The coal mine. Something else is coming if your tooth hurts. So why is that separate? I remember in high school, like the dentist would come and say, your gums are the gateway to your health. I'm like, are they really? <laughs> then why are they not covered? <laughs> it's, and I think that's because unlike other industrialized countries, we've made it capitalistic. Yep. Yeah. Oh, profit margins. Oh, man. Once you make it about the profits, it changes stuff up a little bit, doesn't it? So I'm looking at your fairly storied LinkedIn profile. 
lots of jobs. I like storied. Lots of different sectors, quite diverse in your sort of your skills and talents. Clearly, you are here because you are you weren't born of your condition. You were made of a condition that happened upon you, which you didn't ask for. Yes. But before we get to life after Crohn's, what was life before? What was your job? Did you have different aspirations? <clears throat> so I got diagnosed in April of 1995, and I was 20. About to be 20. I was 19. Okay. So up to that point, my job was trying to get an education um, and waiting tables. So I don't think that it necessarily changed my career trajectory. I have a journalism degree. My focus was public relations. The bottom fell out after I graduated. So I fell into digital on accident, but five years after. I had that surgery. I think that what changed the trajectory when I got diagnosed is I had to miss two years of school. And I'm a get her done kind of person. So at the end of my first year of school, I had 40 credit hours. At the end of my second year, I had 80. That's wow. a lot yeah. after two years. Overachiever is on your badge right now. I just, I don't even know if I'm an overachiever, but... I it comes back to that lack of patience mm -hmm. where I'm like, I got to get this done because I know I'm going to get a degree. So I need to get it in the fastest amount of time as possible. And I want to have a college experience, but I'm here for this degree because I need the utility of that degree. And it was less. This is what I want to do as I want to have the opportunity and the possibility to do anything. So we tick the same census box. We're I think we're 80s kids. I was diagnosed in 96, you 95. We understand what digital really meant right. before there was a word you put together yes. in those <laughs> alphabetical orders. What was your first, like, did you have a Commodore? A, what was your, did you have a console growing up? What, what did what did your family have, if anything, your first computer? Was a Commodore 64. Nice. And, and my first video gaming system was an Atari. And I was in the enrichment program for my county in Virginia. And I used to program computers. I used to do BASIC. Basic. <laughs> what was it? Rem 10, go to 10, something like that. Yes, all those little short commands. And it's basically like just a black screen with yellow or green lines. Mm -hmm. But I thought I was changing the world, right? Because I got to leave class and go do that. So. Did you make like one of those battleship games in, in, in Basic? I can't even remember what I made. I just remember sitting there and thinking, oh, I'm eight and I'm programming a computer. Right, and we're old enough to remember actual floppy disks, not hard floppy disks. I remember the floppy disks. I remember floppy, all floppy, of that. Right, there was floppy, floppy. That kids they today, like, oh, I remember, I've seen the, it's the save icon in Word. No, no, there was this, there were floppies before that floppy. Yes, and it was actually floppy. Very floppy. <laughs> yeah, now I think that people having a USB port is kind of like, what are you doing? I know, everything's wireless now. Yeah, especially in pharma because privacy, regulatory, like what are you doing with the USB? So do you remember your first AOL account? Because everyone needs to, if they had yes, one, what I was it? I still have it. Wait, it's, wait, wait, you still have it? I don't check it anymore, but okay. I still have it. And I know I still have it because do you know how hard it was to cancel your AOL dial-up? I do remember I think days. that was a scam. Like yeah. I had a screaming phone call a decade after I got it. So it was my name, my initials, E.N. Hawthorne, but without the E on the end of Hawthorne wow. at AOL.com. Wow. I was Piano Man 529. 
Oh, wow. Which Did is you my birthday. The piano? Yeah, I'm, I'm a pianist. Oh, nice. Yeah. But then I moved to Jersey and I canceled it because I wanted the free account, which right. is just swap free accounts. My, another 200 hours of free AOL. And it was Piano Man NJ. <laughs> Piano Man. Very proud of that. Very proud of that. Oh, 529. You're a Gemini. We have to deep dive. Down. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a benefit over under. My That's boyfriend's my a Gemini. It's fine. My condolences. <laughs> well, listen. Um, I'm a Virgo, so I heard that we're the, the hardest people to date. I thought Leos were the worst. I really like Leos because I'm looking at it in the sense of my sister's my big sister. She's always looked out for me, protected me. So she does that Leo thing, yeah. but it's always to my benefit. I've never really clashed with the Leo. Right. But Virgos are the, when I said I was trying to get it done, I'm very regimented, yeah. and it's I'm very regimented, but I'm also kind of flighty, which is weird for a Virgo. So you waited tables. <laughs> I waited tables. Like you're supposed to do when you're that age, getting your college. bearings, learning customer service, dealing with people for the first time. I telemarketed cemetery plots in high school. Oh, wow. I've not had anyone <laughs> on the show with those credentials. I always say that. Listen, it was more money than a regular type job. And the office was in the cemetery, which was kind of creepy because I did it 6 to 9.30. Oh, my God. Um, That's like great pumpkin Charlie Brown kind of stuff. It was a little odd. But I feel really happy about doing that. I made a ton of money. But what's more important that I didn't know from that is people say six feet under. It's actually illegal to bury someone less than six feet under. And there's regulatory around it, just like farm is regulated. Mm -hmm. So if you buy it first, it's half the cost of if you buy it when you need it. And the thing about life is that eventually everyone is going to need a cemetery plot, right? The cost is 50% higher. That I'm was getting my launched into space. I don't know about you. Look, I, I I used to call people. One guy was like, no, I already told my family, just put me in the dumpster behind the 7-Eleven at the end of the block. And I was like, sir, it's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> just throw me in Red Hook. I'll be yeah, fine. I'm fine. Like, what do you the care? The rats will eat me. It's the end. Who cares? <laughs> but that rule is, I think, for contem contamination of water sources. I can't remember the why, but it is literally you have to be six feet under. Right. And concrete poured and all this stuff. So I made a good case. I I, I set, I set pre-appointments so the sales guys could go to their houses. But that's a nice skill to develop at that age, too. It comes yeah. in really handy to have that. Do kids today have that? I don't know that any of my nieces and nephews actually talk to people. They just text. Right. <laughs> yeah. I saw that you were like an adjunct professor as well. Yes, I did that for like a year and a half. And I started doing it in the pandemic and... It's another Virgo thing. I was like, I'm just sitting in my house. I don't have anything to do. The school reached out to me. It was a lot of people. We talk a lot about underserved communities and my focus there. It's a lot of people that lost their jobs or lost their businesses during the pandemic, but a lot of things went digital. And so it was a certif certificate series for people who either needed to redefine their own small business or needed to obtain a new skill because the world changed in the pandemic. And so I helped upskill a ton of people in brand and digital marketing. I want to get to that later because upskilling is, I think, the new black in terms of what's been missing in all healthcare communications. And and I have thoughts for the second half of the show. Okay. But let's let's go to this diagnosis. Crohn's disease at a young age is like you know, you're just trying to live your life and it's hard enough. And then this gets yes. lopped on. Were there symptoms? Were you, were, were you taken seriously? So I always used to get more stomach aches than anybody else in my family. like, oh, my stomach hurts. Oh, this is make you know, this makes me feel bad. And I think people thought I was picky, 
but I wasn't super picky. My stomach hurt. Mm -hmm. I started having really bad symptoms like that were, it was not manageable my senior year of high school. And they had changed the law the summer before my senior year because originally in Virginia, if you missed more than 30 days of school, you failed. Oh, wow. Didn't matter what your grades were. This one, as long as your grades were good, you were okay. Mm. I was so sick my senior year, I missed 50-some days of school. So the law changed. I would have had to fight to make a business case to graduate, right? I started having muscle problems because it's inflammatory. Like I had a big... Um, sports reference, Moses Malone knee brace, and my leg dragged, which was a problem because I I played a sport. I was a four-year varsity letterman, and I was trying to figure it out so I could play my sport. I was losing a ton of weight, lots of vomiting, like lots of everything that happens when you have a stomach ache. It messes up your skin, so I'd never really gotten a breakout or anything. So I was missing weeks of school at a time, went through all the diagnosis, all the tests, endoscopy, colonoscopy, this, that. The was other. this a known diagnosis 25 years ago? People were getting diagnosed with Crohn's. I did all the tests. They said that I didn't have it. Of course. And I remember the doctor was telling my mom, like, she just doesn't want to go to school. And I'm telling my parents, I'm like, Mommy, what sense does that make? I'm a four-year varsity letterman. I need two classes to graduate. I'm, I was in the gifted program. Like, school is, I'm kind of cakewalking it, right? Like, that sounds obnoxious, but I wouldn't avoid school because I'm going to go to school and do whatever I want to anyway. You know what I mean? I didn't get my diagnosis. That was in 1992-93. I got my diagnosis in 95 because I developed a fistula. So wait, I would, wait, for the lay people, what is a fistula? So a fistula, it's um, like an opening from your intestines or from some part of your organs that's kind of leaking, right? Like I had a fistula from my small intestine and it kind of sucked my bladder over and stuck my bladder to it. And it was right where your small intestine joins your large intestine. So I had a hodgepodge of three organs stuck together that shouldn't have been. All right, for the listeners, you're moving your hands in a way that makes me really feel like exactly what this is. And it's yeah. something I don't think you want. Well, I'm twisting them because I found all this stuff out when I developed Crohn's is that your 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 intestines are always like clenching and unclenching. Mm -hmm. And when I got diagnosed and they were like, oh, you're going to have to have surgery. We're going to have to cut that out. I actually had to sign paperwork for them to crack my chest even, your rib cage. Oh, my. Well, because your intestines move all around. And you're how old? I was 19. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, they, they – you know, it's interesting because they had me talk to a couple of other patients, young people that had had the surgery. And I talked to a girl who had a seam from here all the way down because they – and I – at first, this is – I was like, Mom, I'm not going to get the surgery because then I'll have a bikini, a scar in my bikini. Yeah. And she's like, they said you'll die. Right. But I was just thinking like, oh, I'm not doing that because that's going to mess up my looks. Right, right, exactly. That's going to mess up what I want to wear. But isn't that how we're supposed to think at that age, <laughs> yeah. right? I just remember being told, oh, you have brain cancer. I'm like, okay, now what? Right. Like, it, was, it was a shock, but it wasn't a shock. I'm like, hey, I got to go back to school. Can we get this over with? Which was kind of my assumption, right? Like I ended up having to sign a living will. And I was just like, well, no, I'm not going to do it because I didn't have anything really serious going on where I felt like I had to be serious. And mind you, I went to college. I was 17 because my birthday's in September, Labor Day weekend. So the first couple of weeks of college, I was underage. By the time 
college ended, I never went home. I never went home again. I had an apartment when I was 18 years old. So not only was I 20 credit hours a semester, I worked 40 hours a week, paid my rent, had a car, was wearing $300 shoes, which was probably a silly thing to do right. <laughs> in 1994. But I was like, I have so much money. But you look good. <laughs> I look fantastic. Please. I had beige leather couches, really good furniture. But you earned it all. Uh, you hustled. My parents ended up paying for my couches, but okay. not because of me. I made the first few payments and they couldn't believe I was so responsible. They paid the rest. Woo-ha. Wow. Yeah. But so I was... I had a bunch going on. I was just like, no, because I'm miss work. I got rent to pay. And that's actually the first thing I said when my mom was like, you will die. I'm like, but I always pay my own rent because I'm not that kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the kid that was like, give me some money. Or, hey, you can use the credit card at the mall. And then I spent too much money. So I had- Buying cassette tapes. Cassette tapes. <laughs> Banana clips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Orange Julius. Orange And stickers. Remember stickers? <laughs> Our I sticker don't. books? I didn't have you the have sticker stickers. books. I didn't. That might have been like a New York thing. Like we just had sticker books. I read a lot. I bought a lot of books. Even now I ask for books for Christmas. And Wait, what's a book? I'm sorry. A, a book. Right. I'm a digital person, but right. I love books the way they smell. Well, physically holding it in books. your hand. Yeah. Yeah. I love books. And I love books more than a movie or anything like that. Because the story that I make up in my head to accompany this script is always better than, like, My Sister's Keeper, which was about a health issue. And the girl had um, cystic fibrosis, I think. Right. Um, I loved that book. And I love holding the books. I I don't know what I would do. Like, I, I see the movie, and the movie was, like, nowhere near the story that I made up in my head. It was Cameron Diaz. It was not as good as the book. Jody Picoult. Well, rarely is it as good as the book. Never is it. I've never watched a movie that was better than the book, and I've usually read the book first, so I'm not a big movie person. The closest, I would argue, is Godfather. Puzio was involved with with Coppola when they made the movie, so they okay. kind of kept it as accurate as... I mean, yes, I agree. There really are no comparables, but yeah. the Godfather, the book, and the Godfather, the film, I would claim here... As close as possible. It's about as close as you can get. So I don't know if you're going to kick me out of here, but I say this all the time, and I actually tried to sit down and do it. I have never watched any of the Godfather movies beginning to end. Bits and pieces, but I've never seen... It is like 80 hours of film <laughs> back to back. <laughs> I've never seen one of them from well, the beginning you, you to the end. you can stay. That's perfectly okay. fine. But you got the reference, and you said Orange Julius. So you're, you're in the club. <laughs> you can stay. But we're going to take a quick break... <laughs> And be right back with Erica Hawthorne. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with Erica. I love that you use the word strategy maybe 30 times, rightfully so, in your LinkedIn profiles and whatnot. But does pharma really have a strategy? And if so, what is that? And I ask that question because I've been at this as long as you from a different vantage, agencies and nonprofits and public health policy. And strategies, it's a bunch of syllables. And today we're looking at like DEI has been a conversation since, I don't know, reparations. Yes. <laughs> How is this a thing still, right? Right. And so, oh, my God, you said so many things, and I'm going to tick off all of the points. So strategy, I find <clears throat> whether it's DE&I, whether it's marketing, whether it's procurement, that pharma has overwrought strategies that don't necessarily have any foundation in truth, right? I say that because I've been in pharma for four years, and I'm coming from early adopter channels, and we did strategy at serious levels. Like for Hershey's Candy, for Marriott International, like a strategy is, hey, we want to do a message test. We know we have different audiences. We know we have Germans. We have the German website. We know we have, you know, Asia Pacific Rim, Latin America. So we took all these messages and you do actual testing. So it's a survey. Which of these messages resonates with you? And we saw patterns. Hey, people in Germany really care about credit card security. Then we put it into creative iterations. Which ones respond well? Different countries had different responses responses, right? And then we said, okay, what sites will this work on best? Right message to the right person at the right time, right? None of that happens in pharma. And I think that it's really odd because I always say Hershey's knows so well who buys Jolly Ranchers that people need pills. Yeah. They Would really know their customer. And I think that pharma is of the opinion, tying it into the DEI is we don't really have to be representative. We don't really have to have much strategy. Somebody's going to have Crohn's disease. They'll see the ad. They'll ask their doctor. Doctors are going to be receptive to the ads because it's a gastroenterologist. They want to help their Crohn's patients. It doesn't go like that for everyone and particularly for underserved communities, whether it's I speak about my community. I'm African-American. I have an illness, right? We have medical disparities. We have these differences. I need something different from my doctor. 
I need this to be strategically that you understand that these patients are not a monolith and that I am not one dimensional. I think it's it always bothers me in pharma because they say patient marketing. I'm like patient marketing, HCP marketing bothers me. No one is their job. No one is their condition of all the things that I am. I think about the fact that I have Crohn's disease so much less than I think about the fact that I'm a five foot one black woman. Right. And I think that you have to see if you're talking about my LinkedIn, it says strategy a lot that I say that I'm a people-focused marketer. People say results-driven, data-driven, results-oriented, data-driven. What are you driving results from? From the data? What's the data about the people? You got to focus on the people. Like if you look at somebody as data points, then it kind of gets into the, is the pharma creative really connected? No. Well, it's it's very paternalistic, assumptive, and apathetic. I use those words a lot mm-hmm. because would you agree that in Hershey world, there's a demand for their products, so consumers might be receptive to learn more about where else can I get diabetes <laughs> right? versus healthcare, which is you're not the customer. The doctor's the customer, and the ecosystem and the profit incentives aren't based on you consciously wanting to buy something. Right. How do you feel about that? I think that it is a miss. I think that that's a very unilateral approach. Oh, that's how all people are. That's how white people are. That's not how black people are. That's not how Hispanic people are. I think when I look at the media and when I was at Bayer, we had we were in-house. So we actually owned our own data. We did our own strategies. I could be hands in the media. We're not like that at all. If you tell me, like, my niece is 31. She has two kids. She calls her mom while she's at the doctor with her kids. Mom, they said, because we're going to crowdsource it. And if your mama or your grandmama, your big mama, if somebody in your family has not co-signed this, it's not just happening at the doctor. It's not. And I think that that's one of the big differences, right, is not only are we the customer, too, because of that, but also from the perspective of the changing of the demographics of the United States. 2042, we're going to be majority Hispanic. And and I'm not saying African-American, I'm saying black, because a lot of the black people in pharma are West Indian from the Caribbean or from the continent of Africa. So African-American is just, you're, you're here from slavery or whatever. So I think that it's important because this is a group of people that they do not know. And you saw the hesitancy with the vaccine and people thought it was, oh, because COVID vaccine is new. It's not. The hesitancy is because of the Tuskegee experiment. (laughs) Well, I want to interrupt you because how is this still a conversation? Not in the sense of denying it's important, which it clearly is, but where are the barriers to maybe cogence or execution on the fact that we're how much more do we need to understand about this from industry down? So I think that the barrier is that pharma doesn't really have black and Hispanic people. At Bayer, we were right around 4% black, right around 4% Hispanic. If you look at the pharma corridor, and I actually went and did this because I was so shocked when I came to pharma. At my agency, I was the black person, right? No Hispanic. There were two Asian people and then white people. At Bayer, any of those companies at all, the Boston corridor for pharma, the Jersey corridor for pharma, if you look at the makeup of the communities around these pharma headquarters, they're over-indexed for white people, 
massive over-index for Asian, right? 15% of Bayer's employees were Asian. And then we were 4% black, 4% Hispanic, which Hispanic is not a race. It's an eth- it's an ethnicity. Right. You can be black and Hispanic. Hello, Afro-Latino. So you're 8%, 15%. 8% plus 15% is 23%. We were 77% white. The country's 64% white. Wait, is this representation in the workforce or in leadership? Both. Okay. Right? And then, so I think about it at this different level and think about this. I had the highest ranking business side title at Bear, meaning outside of somebody who was there in a DE&I job. There was no one like me above me. But when you look at the thing that black employees need to break through, the biggest thing that they need from leadership is someone in a mentoring position who understands their struggle. And our primary struggle is, hey, it's difficult being the black person, right? And so if you have built a life where you go to work, you go home, your job your home environment is devoid of Hispanic and African-American people or black people, how do you reach them? You have built a life, whether, and I feel like people think those things aren't intentional. That's intentional. Where do you go in this world where your community is 80% white? That is weird. All right, I'm going to throw one at you because you, you, in a sense, this is a version of upskilling, right? You need yep. mentorship, but above you needs upskilling about you supporting this. I would contend, and this is really more one of those like, I don't know, like a Rube Goldberg question. There's no answer to it. From a profit margin perspective, let's look at economic shareholder value and capitalism, just which I don't think in this vein, but for thought Companies do. Yeah, I know. Yes. It should be in the economic interest of the entire healthcare system to guarantee that Americans of every shape, color, size, background, literacy level, economic backstory get what they need when they need it on their terms. Yep. So why aren't they monetarily incentivized to understand they should care about and execute on this? I think that they're not monetarily incentivized by it because when you belong to a group like I'm black and my life is incredibly black once I leave work white people's lives are usually incredibly white too that they probably are thinking about it i know they're thinking about it because people have dei operations within their companies right they're thinking about it and but they're thinking here's what i would do but y'all are white right it's that lack of knowledge so you cannot reach people that you are unwilling to hire and i say unwilling and i think that we have to speak hard truths because take it outside of pharma take it outside of dei you know every time there's a racial incident in america it's like this isn't who we are well you're lying to yourself about who you are because the country was built on the premise of of white supremacy. This is a fact. So if you're not willing to confront that, and then the second piece of that is when you confront that and we talk about African-Americans and say, oh, they were enslaved and they were labor and they were here for their, their brute strength. No, 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 no. Cotton was a dying industry in the U.S., White people could not figure out how to farm the cotton because they had arid soil, soil that maybe wasn't tenable for cotton, right? And they had to figure out a way to turn over, keep this soil rich. That was intellectual genius because Africans invented all of that stuff. Regardless of what anybody thinks about irrigation or any of those things, 
Africa is the cradle of civilization. You just went full-blown cultural anthropologist on me. Because you have to, because listen, and you know why I do that? Because everything that I just said, I guarantee that whoever's thinking like, oh, we're going to hire some black people, that they haven't thought about that. I hear all these stories about black people having less intellectual capacity. No, 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 no. The opposite of that, right? Opposite of that. Especially if they're Virgos. Especially if they're Virgos, honey. Listen, <laughs> the most educated immigrant to come ashore in the United States is an African, powered heavily by the Nigerians. They are the most educated people on the face of planet Earth, right? If you look at the most educated, and education doesn't equal intelligence, but a most educated native-born American, it's a black woman. New York is like 30-some percent black. 30-some percent, almost 40 percent Hispanic in certain areas. If you can't find us here, it's because you don't know where to look for us. You don't know any of us. That is a fact. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt and go back to the fundamental conundrum, okay. which is it's never really been in the economic interest of an industry to give a shit about these marginalized communities. But there should be an economic incentive to do this. It's about a $300 billion annual loss for the lack of compliance and engagement from African-American communities. There you go. That's an incredible data point. It's good money. Yeah. Can you? How do we help them not lose $300 billion by actually helping communities that need it? This is the very definition of doing well and doing good. Yes. How do you do that? You do that by taking off this big pharma requirement. We talk about all of the industries that I've worked in. Pharma has a requirement that you had to have worked in pharma for like 10 years to do marketing at elite levels in pharma. But the problem with that is that pharma marketers grow up in pharma, which is 10 to 15 years behind the rest of the industries, and they approach digital and marketing in a way that is not technically marketing, right? And I mean, maybe it needs another name. I taught brand marketing. I taught digital marketing. A brand marketer agency side, you know this, Kara comes in, does all of the big takeovers, custom pieces, direct buys. I worked at iProspect. We come in, expand the reach, lower cost, take it to performance, run the lower funnel. They have different functions. And the brand marketers and pharma are usually pharmacy students who go on a rotation through functional areas at a pharmaceutical company. And then they end up as a pharma AD of marketing. You're an associate director of marketing. And you don't necessarily know marketing, you know pharma. And it is so much easier to teach an industry than to teach the functional skill. And it goes back to what I said about Hershey's Marriott. People are going to do what people do. It doesn't matter that, like, people are like, this is pharma. I need to watch a television commercial. This is pharma. I shouldn't expect this ad to be interactive. This is pharma. I shouldn't expect to be able to download a coupon from the display ad. People do that everywhere else because that is what people do. Mm -hmm. So this whole digital revolution and digital transformation in pharma, they're 10 to 15 years behind other industries. And you've talked to me and anybody who's talked to me, I don't believe in false humility. I came into the industry First year, won the Pinnacle Award from MM&M. Next year, won the Woman of Distinction. My team won the Innovation Award. I am fantastic at what I do. Over there in the other industries that are early adopter, I'm just one of the whiz kids, not the right, whiz Right, you shouldn't kid. be special in pharma because you're exceptional everywhere else. 
it, it's I'm exceptional there and in pharma. Yeah, that came out wrong. Me. You're yeah. exceptional. You're Virgo exceptional anywhere, but pharma has a different weights and measures system. Yeah, and so it's like I I did a lot of good work and I appreciate that, but mostly what I do looks so outsized because pharma has never seen anything like me, mm-hmm. and part of that is me being a black woman who is. Who knows her shit. And who is disabled, I guess, right? Which is what they told me at 20. It's think about this, Matthew. I have been the black kid in class. I'm obviously the black kid at these corporations. You're the black kid in the room right now. I'm the black kid, but you're the white kid, so we kind of balanced (laughs) out. We're fine. We're fine. I'm the Jewish kid. The Jewish kid, see? It's, do you think I know white people better than white people know me? Or do white people know me better? And I'm saying that as a sort of rhetorical. I'm a better marketer. Because I know all these communities, because mm-hmm. I've been forced to know all these communities. The fact that I am black should not be a DE&I hire. Like, I go to these events, and they're like, and we're going to upskill you, and we're going to bring you into these high-level positions. And here's a business card. And it's like, F you. <laughs> this is a senior manager role. Right. I haven't been a senior manager in 13 years, right? And the fact that I am black and a patient is a differentiator that is steps up, not steps back. The only reason that pharma is trying to upskill, I used to work at IAC, which most people don't know IAC, but they own Angie's List, Home Advisor, OK Cupid, Plenty of Fish. They own a bunch of stuff. Wow. I know those, I know those brands. Yeah, Those are good brands. they have that big, beautiful building right across from Chelsea Piers. It's Frank, uh, whatever the oh, the Frank Gary building. Yes, the weird that, looking one. That yeah. weird. It's yeah. very um, like prismist, yeah. prism like. Yeah. That is the IAC building. So I actually, because I'm so into the DE and I, and I loved it when I got there because all of the directors in marketing were black, and there was one white woman, and I'm like, ooh, I'm not one of. One, right? And then people started quitting. And I went to, I emailed Joy Levine, who was the CEO, and he said, Oh, come up to my office. And I went up there and was like, What's happening? And I was like, There's nobody above me at this company with a higher title Mm -hmm. because it happens everywhere I go now, right? Because I've been doing this for 20 years. And he said, Erica, if you want a, a tree to bear fruit, you have to plant it 20 years before. So the reason that pharma is so far behind on everyone's bad at DE&I, by the way, it's not just pharma. Right. If you have to have a DE&I department, you're bad at inclusion <laughs> because you live in a multi- You shouldn't need it in the first place. You live in a multicultural society. It's not weird to you that you show up at work and it's white people and Asian people and every now and then. And then you complain, why aren't these people doing this? Yeah. And why aren't they engaging and why, and, and I think that $300 billion is going to grow exponentially because with the vaccine, even some of the white people don't want to take the yeah, treatments right, anymore. Right, right, They're right. taking horse tranquilizers instead, right? So This episode not sponsored by Ivermectin. <laughs> All right. So let's wrap up with a, with a positive story. Yes. Do you have uh, maybe, maybe a quick yarn about something you've seen that actually works? I'll tell you something that I've seen that actually works. Hiring the people that you haven't hired. And here's an example, right? I went to Howard University. It's the biggest HBCU in the country. They call it the Mecca, the promised land for black people. Howard University and Xavier out of New Orleans still educates undergraduate 80% of the black people in the United States that go on to be doctors. And the positive story from that is that a lot of my friends are pharmacists 
and doctors, because that is what Howard does. We produce lawyers, pharmacists, doctors, right? Um, and one of my best friends is Dr. Condra Tyler Bynum. She's the chief medical officer for Juvenile Healthcare Administrative Services in Washington, D.C., and a practicing pediatrician in the city. And I think that that thing about, hey, hire us, how does it change things? You know, like she told me she had a patient come in and the little girl scared. Doctor, you know you're going to get a shot or something. But she said the little girl like tugged on her mom and whispered, it's a real life Doc McStephens. Wow. Because it matters. Yeah. Because it matters. Representation yes. matters. And it didn't matter what my friend was going to tell her she had to do. She trusted her more because that little girl's not used to right. like the, her caregiver is a black woman. I'll wrap by saying, and to all those people who are pissed off that the Little Mermaid's black, go fuck yourself. It's about damn time. Ooh, it is. I'm going to shoot a TikTok about that because there's a reason. Yeah. Yes. Erica Hawthorne. I don't know how to outro you. Unicorn, Virgo, takes no shit, gets shit done, entrepreneur, the right amount of angry, disappointed, and auntie. And auntie. That's my favorite. Auntie and stepmommy. Because that love is at the bottom of all of it. I love people. I want everybody to be well. Even if you maybe mistreated my group or whatever, okay, let's fix it. Let's everybody be right, well. Drop your podcast for the listeners to subscribe. What's the URL or the name? It is Lion Tales, all major platforms. Um, the hunt will always glorify the hunter until the lion tells his tale. Stories of the people of African descent from the people of African descent. And we will put a link to that in the description. Erica, thank you so much. Thank you, Matthew Zachary. All right. See everybody next time. Bye-bye. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.